Hey friend, thanks for listening to the Fixate Phoenix podcast. We are praying that you are blessed by this week's message. If you would like to partner with the future of Fixate, you can visit fixatephx.com slash give. We thank you for today. We thank you for the symbolism of what today means. And as we get into the nitty gritties of this story, may we place ourselves within it place our theology within it, our spirituality within it, our our posture of following you within it. God, would you continue to form us in your image, not the image of another charismatic leader, preacher, brand, or symbol, but rather the personhood of you. God, may people be challenged to pursue your spirit and your intimacy today above everything. In Jesus' name, and the church said, (laughs) Palm Sunday, I'm, I'm subtitling this Does this mean what I think it means? Does this mean what I think it means? And really it's because I think a lot of the times when we talk about Palm Sunday, we have this understanding that a week before Jesus' crucifixion, he sends his disciples, they grab a random donkey, show up, and he just rides it into palm trees and coats on the ground. Which many of us, I feel like we read that, we're like, oh, that's good, God, but that is so random and ridiculous a little bit. But that's really the story, but there's so much more symbolism, there's so much more historical context that we seek to understand. And The question that I'm asking, does this mean what I think it means, is because I believe a lot of people who put their coats on the ground and held up those palm branches thought it meant something that it didn't. And I think this is what it means sometimes to follow God, is we have ideas in our mind, made up ideas of what it means to follow Jesus And God, I think the the process of spiritual maturity is confronting the ideas of ingrained ways of thinking we think God functions as and putting him at his feet and letting him transform those. Just as people in the crowd took the coats off in the palm trees, I believe today God is going to challenge perceptions and hopefully change some. When I was moving here uh, a little, now it would be a year and a half ago, me and my wife, and some of you guys have heard this story, but just laugh like you haven't. Thank you for a couple of those, those nice laughs. It's like got a few delayed ones there. Um, I, I'm one of those guys that I drive through the night when I travel. And what it usually looks like is pre-workout fat burners and water on my head at 2 a.m. Some of you guys think I'm kidding. Um, but, uh, but I remember I was flying out. We had just bought our, our home here in Phoenix. And I literally decided, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to catch a red eye out on Friday morning at 5 a.m. I'm going to land in Chicago. We moved from Michigan. I'm going to go drive from Chicago to Michigan, which is two hours. I'm going to pick up a U-Haul. I'm going to load everything in the U-Haul. I'm going to pick up my father-in-law when I get done with when I get when he gets off work at five, and then we are going to drive straight to Phoenix. So in 48 hours, I slept about four. But I'm going to tell you, we got it done. It's like all the dudes are like, if you don't have a, a boss moving story, are you even a dude? You know, it's like, and, and what I mean is as life progresses, like if you're 20, you still have time, right? <laughs> but I remember, I remember I'm like, it was a great idea in my mind, but it was so intense that like when we pulled up in our U-Haul truck, we had six people in our driveway, unloaded the entire U-Haul, set our beds up and everything. I mean, we did it. <laughs> Some of you dudes are like, wow, the bar is extremely high. Yeah, it's so you can't pass it. (laughs) 
So 40, so literally that 48 hours was a blur, but the first leg of this, I'm in the airport, it's 5 a.m., we're loading, I've got just this cheapo flight one way to Chicago, and I remember 5 a.m., it's funny because we're three hours different, so I'm on the phone with my mom, and my mom is giving me coaching points like she always does on literally everything forever about every topic, and um, I remember I'm sitting there, and as I'm getting in line, I get in line, and and you know, we all know have flown where we're in line and we're and we're going and the line, you know, beep and then the next and then beep and the next. Line always moves. Well, I'm like on the phone and then I realize like the line is not moving. I'm like looking and I'm only like seven or eight people from the front, so I'm like, why isn't this line moving? You know, and I and it's this woman sitting here scanning negative, scanning negative, scanning nope, and it's and it's red light, so she's scanning and she's getting frustrated, frustrated. With the lady, and she's like, you know, I, why isn't this working? And she's like, well, I, and they're like troubleshooting her phone, turn up your brightness. After like probably a minute, and I, and I know because, you know, when this line stops, all of us know when you're like, oh, I'm supposed to be on the flight, I need to get on the flight. It's like, like internal anxiety. It's like, is it full? I don't know. I mean, so, so I'm like sitting there, I'm like, mom, I got to hang up. And I'm like listening, and this lady's like, scan, no. No. Finally, the stewardess, after, you know, reset the phone, do all, she looks at her and she goes, you're going to Chicago, right? She goes, Chicago? She's like, yeah, this is a flight to Chicago. She said, I'm, I'm going to Charlotte. She said, well, you're at, the, you're at the wrong gate. This is the wrong flight, ma'am. She goes, oh, okay, bye. <laughs> Just t- literally takes off running. You literally can see her run, and, like, she's looking at the screens trying to figure out. Literally held up the entire line because the entire time... She thought she was in the right spot, going the right place, doing the right thing. There's no way. This is until, actually, I might be wrong. This sums up what I would say a lot of Jerusalem is with Jesus at this time. How could you go from one week, Hosanna, Hosanna, save us now, the definition Save us now. Take my coat off. Wave the palm tree. Hosanna. To a week later, crucify him. Crucify him. The public outrage of the Jewish people literally peer pressuring in the Roman government. You know, it's fascinating. And I think a, a story of the, the, the story that's not told enough is that Pontius Pilate's wife literally has a dream the night before Jesus that he was literally the Messiah telling her husband, hey, this guy's the real deal. Yet the public outcry is so extreme that he has to wash his hands and pivot it to Herod because he has no, he can't go against the crowds. One week the crowds are, he's everything. And the next week the crowds are kill him. One week the crowds are certain they're supposed to be on the plane, and the next week there's a realization that this isn't the plane that they want. And so what I want to talk about today is the historical context beneath the underpinning of why these people are so flighty. What happened? So let's read really quickly the story, and I'm going to jump through the story. And really, the main one is Mark, and the reason is is because I want to focus on the prophecies for two seconds. Then I'm going to marry it with the other two passages because there's certain wordings that I really like. So Mark, Mark, or no, Matthew, what am I doing? Matthew 21. (laughs) Golly, who's this preacher? He's got to figure his stuff out. 
Matthew 21, 1-10, when they had approached Jerusalem and had came to Bethage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you'll find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. Untie her and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say the Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. This took place to fulfill what was spoken to the prophet, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on the colt, the fowl of a beast of burden. This is a Zechariah 9.9 reference. Many of the Old Testament major and minor prophets, what Jesus inter, is interwoven in his ministry is fulfilling different prophecies related to what he was supposed to do and become. This one specifically, Matthew writes in so people realize that, hey, hundreds and hundreds of years before this, Zechariah pointed to this moment. Make sure you remember it. This isn't the first prophetic moment. The second one is this. Let's keep reading. The disciples went and did just as Jesus instructed them and brought the donkey and the colt and laid their coats on them and he sat on the coats. Most of the crowd spread their coats on the ground and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them on the road. The spreading of the coats you can actually find in 2 Kings 9, 12 to verse 13, in which Jehu becomes king and in a liberation move, people celebrating the fact that he would be leading freedom from oppression, spread their coats on the ground as symbolism of utter devotion. This isn't the only reference we see of a liberating king in which the people embrace him for the liberation and freedom in which he is prophesied to bring. But you're seeing that he's setting the table for what the expectation of Jerusalem is. Many of you, um, I believe, let me see here, I had it written down. I want to make sure I reference it right here. Josephus estimates that in Jerusalem at this time, the surge of population would push three million people. Three million people. And so as all of these people are coming together, what's happening is that everybody has these ideas of what the fact that this Savior is liberating on the time of Passover, another emphasis of liberation from Moses. Everybody's like, freedom's coming. Freedom's here. And it is, but not in the way they thought. Let's keep reading. It says this. Verse 9, the crowds going ahead of him and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest, a reference to Psalms. Continuing on. Verse 10, when he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, Who is this? And the crowds were saying, This is the prophet of Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. Luke 19, 36 through 40, as, as a supplement to the text. As he was going, they were spreading their coats on the road. As soon as he was approaching near the descent of Mount, Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began to praise him joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen. Shouting, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Love this wording. Verse 40, Jesus answered, I tell you, if these became silent, even the stones would cry out. 
another ending portion in John that I'm absolutely in love with. John 12, 18 to 19. For this reason, also the people went and met him because they had performed, he heard, they had heard he performed signs. So the Pharisees were saying to one another, you see that you are not doing any good. Look, the whole world has gone after him. Think about it in that day and time to see crowds of millions chanting, buzzing, speaking his name. Hosanna in the highest, spreading their coats. The whole world looked like it was going after him literally as this is the once a month where all Jewish tradition all across the globe took up pilgrimage back to the holy city. Now here is where it gets interesting though. Most Christians forget that there's historical context before this passage. The historical context actually takes place over 160 years before Jesus. And this moment does. And in it, there's a Jew by the name of Judas Maccabeus, who enters Jerusalem to liberate it upon war horse and army at his back. This is after the Greek general Antichus Epiphus sacrificed pigs and swine on the flesh on the altar of God, converting the rooms of the inner temple to a brothel. As it, as it goes on, this is actually mentioned as the abomination of desolation in Matthew 24, 15 and Daniel 12, 11. He turned these rooms into the brothel, turned these altars. And if you know anything about Jewish heritage is the Greeks took over the city in taking over the city. They wanted to usurp the religion of the city. Knowing that Mosaic law prohibited swine eating or touching anything and it would be ceremonially unclean, they put pigs on the altars of the inner sanctuary and burned them to defile it, converting the inner rooms of the temple to a brothel in which prostitutes and they could literally defile everything in the temple until this man steps up, Judas Maccabeus. Judas Maccabeus, this man who summons an army and says, no, this Greek atheistic spirit will not exist. I will fight. And for three years fights, liberating and restoring the temple, slaughtering the Greeks. But guess what happens? 160 years later, there's a new army on the scene. Rome. So here's the historical context you need to understand. Literally, Judas Maccabeus, it's said historically, is liberated around this same time. Most people know the idolatry or the ideology behind it. So they're looking at Jesus and saying, this is our new Judas Maccabeus. As he liberated us from the Greek oppression, so now Jesus will liberate us from the Roman oppression. Not realizing that Jesus was there to deliver from sin. Now government structure not army or regime, but satanic influence and sinful oppression of man. See, this is what I need you to understand and what I was trying to set this, this table around is that a lot of us 
Does this mean what I think it means is us assessing our lives? And I believe that it's in all good, right? We want to be used of God. We want God in our innermost being. We want him to transform our hearts and lives. But I also think that there are sometimes thoughts in our minds, much like the Jews, where they just assumed Judas Maccabeus. You know what's interesting about Judas Maccabeus as well is that it literally he stamped into coins a hammer as symbolism of the ritual to never forget who delivered the people. Their coinage had symbol of this liberator. The Greeks, the greatest oppression outside of Babylon before that, you've got the Babylon, the Greek, and now the Roman Persecution. What is God trying to do? What is Jesus doing? Yes, he's liberating, but everybody has this made-up routine and idea that it's with bloodshed, and it is, but not the bloodshed they think. The bloodshed that they think, the bloodshed that they seek is not necessarily this man who will destroy Rome and slaughter the insurgency. It's one who will actually be killed for his people. So what I want to do is I want to give you a couple things. How to make sure the right thing isn't the wrong thing on this Palm Sunday. How do you make sure the right thing following Jesus doesn't become the wrong thing on this Palm Sunday? Because I'm telling you this. We see what happens when the right thing is really the wrong thing. One week, it's here's the palm trees, the palm branches, and the coats on the ground. And the next week, it's crucify him. And in all honesty, this sometimes feels like what faith is today, is we know the goodness of God and we know the celebratory nature of what it means to encounter his presence. But then when it starts teetering into self-sacrifice and changing and confronting the fleshly nature, all of a sudden it's like, hey, I thought this would go a different way. How do you make sure the right thing isn't the wrong thing this Palm Sunday? The first one is this. Your king is on a donkey, not a war horse. Don't get so lost fighting against wickedness, you forget to live righteous. I tell you, man, we're really easy at picking sides and not really that good at changing our own life. <laughs> and what I mean by that is I pray that just as we are committed to seeing sin eradicated in the world, we're even more committed to seeing it eradicated from our own souls. And what's sad to me today is that we forget. See, Jesus literally sets the imagery right. A lowly donkey was the prophecy. It wasn't war horse with thousands of soldiers and slaughter everybody. It was a donkey. It was 12 disciples and a donkey. Sounds like a huge liberation moment for the people. No, it wasn't. But they failed to understand that what they were looking for liberation from wasn't flesh and blood. It was rulers and principalities. It was demonic spirits in the wicked fallen world we live in. So I think for a lot of us, if, if we were to think about this, right? I, Kenneth Hagin, who a, a man I respect, has a phrase that's always challenged me. Never be so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. And I think a lot of the times what happens is we want the righteousness of God, the righteousness of God, the righteousness of God. And what we don't realize is the yoke is easy, the burden is light. For I am gentle and humble of heart. Is the phrase directly next to it. For we overcome by the blood of the lamb and the word of the testimony. And then we forget the next part. And we loved not our lives until death. 
Isn't it interesting that framing theology is easy when we cherry pick the things that we like, but there's such more to what God wants for you. And for me, I believe the greatest agent of world change is a life changed. And as sad as it is, we want to change the world before we want to change our lives. And if you're somebody who, man, you're praying for God to do some praying, but man, you're not as intentionally trying to change, steward, and grow yourself into the image of him, you might be following a war horse forgetting that it's supposed to be a donkey. The second thing is this. Your king will save, but he is remembered for what he suffered. In Christ's kingdom, salvation and self-sacrifice go hand in hand. See, a lot of us, we want the saving without the sacrifice. We want the saving with no suffering. You know what's interesting to me, and actually I referenced it earlier, is Hosanna, that phrase, is something that would be uttered in Jewish tradition, and it's uttered from the phrase of Psalms 118, a famous song that would be sung. In this Psalms, which in that, the literal meaning, save us now, is this idea that God, as Judas Maccabeus did, is going to save them literally now. Literally now. See, what's funny to me is I believe the reason Jesus' angry mob of crucifixion happened is because as people are putting their coats on the ground and waving the palm trances, they're thinking right now in this moment, he is saving us now. Not realizing that actually... He is, but he's not in the way they thought. And how many of us have ideas of God saving that maybe aren't fully correct? Wanting to save us from circumstance, wanting to even save us from consequence, but not wanting to save us from ourselves. And I want to challenge us today because I think that a lot of us what we forget, I love even the imagery of Paul's story. Simeon arguing with God in Acts 9 saying, why would you send me to this Paul guy? Literally, he's persecuting Christians. Acts 9, 16, and I will show him how much he will have to suffer for my namesake. Before Paul even assumes apostleship, he's going to know how much he's going to have to suffer. And it's almost like this backhanded to Simeon. He's like, man, he should be getting punished. And God's like, don't worry, he's going to get punished. <laughs> but what I'm saying today is this, is I believe that a lot of us, we want Christ's kingdom of salvation, but not Christ's kingdom of self-sacrifice and suffering. Palm Sunday is us realizing that we can want the right thing, but make sure it's actually the right thing. Sacrifice. And self-suffering are not these things that we run through or we're risk adverse. There's something that God builds his kingdom on. And from building the kingdom, I want to speak for two seconds because it's not about building his kingdom. It's about you finding fulfillment. And God has constructed the nature of kingdom building and tied it directly to fulfillment. When we are building the kingdom, we're fulfilling our souls. When we are in union with God, we are pursuing a fullness that only he provides. Another reference of this would be the manna in the wilderness that rains down from heaven. I find it fascinating that God rained manna and quail. Quail, protein, but manna, sustenance. In the Mediterranean diet, one of the only things, one of the only 
nutritional aspects of carb, nutrient-dense carb things that would fill our stomachs, that would make us feel full, is wheat. Where do you get wheat in a desert? You don't. You get it rained down from heaven as it fills your belly and reminds you who sustains. Don't pick up enough for tomorrow. I'll fill you enough for today. This is the imagery laced throughout the Bible is if you seek me, I'll fulfill. If you seek me, I will give you what you need to continue going. The challenge is this, if we believe it. Because if we believe it, self-sacrifice... And suffering makes it worth it because we recognize that if I want to eat the bread from heaven, there may be wilderness involved. If I want to follow Jesus, there may be times where it feels like a literal crucifixion of my flesh. But boy, there's fulfillment. The third thing, your king is not abolishing the government. I'm letting that one sit for a second. He wants to reorient your perspective of it and keep your eyes upward and inward, not downward and outward. What does upward and inward mean? Upward and inward. Upward meaning God. My eyes are on you so you can change the inner workings of me and give me eyes to see how you do. But so often what we want to do is we want to look outward and downward on people. Look at the fallenness of the world and then get mad at how fallen it is and how much it needs Jesus. Ah, We all know that. We all know that. But what the world needs more than anything is changed lives. Examples, literal examples of Christ that could permeate every sphere and corner of society in which people realize that this is not just relevant, but it's real. And for me, the fruit of my life has never been trying to change people's minds. The fruit of my life has been let me live so much in Christ that literally it opens their minds to see a different way of living. And I can't tell you how many testimonies I have of just living that ask questions of people who don't ask questions because their minds are made up in our own minds, but they're not. You might find that if you live within the powerful reality of intimacy and proximity with God, that people's minds naturally open because they haven't seen it. It's so rare to have a purity and depth related to the kingdom in which they can ask questions and there's real answers. There's a life that models. You know, there's something that I think a lot of us don't realize is that Before God anoints Saul, before he sends Samuel to anoint Saul, Saul argues with the people in which he says, listen, God doesn't want a king for you. And then he lists why they don't want a king. He's going to force your sons into army. He's going to force you to pay taxes. He's going to do all of these things. And what you need to notice is this, is there's a reason God didn't want worldly kingship. And it's because it is forced following Why do you think God put that tree in the Garden of Eden if he knew things would happen? Is because free will is what he wants. I don't want to be married to my wife because she was forced to be. I want to, I'm married to her because she chose me. And I believe a lot of us, what we think is, man, if God could just assume control, if God could just have forced following... And we don't realize that from the inception of kingship, God's been against it. I want people to choose me, to know my goodness, 
to know my grace, to know my forgiving power, and to know the fullness and life that can only be found in communion with me. The last point, your king does not want you shouting the right things with the wrong heart. Proximity and prioritization will reveal the person of Jesus to you more than anything else. The crowd shouted the right things but failed to grasp the significance of what was truly happening. And then a week later, those shouting of the right things became the wrong things. And I want to say this to you. There is a distinct difference between enthusiasm and truth. Social faith can get lost in crowds and the enthusiasm by the intoxicating nature they possess. Personal growth only happens when repeated proximity and prioritization see through groupthink and into what truly I believe about God. See, we as a culture have trumpeted crowd thinking development. And the reason deconstructionists took root in our country is because we were never trained to think intentionally on our own. We were never think to process. We've been in the crowds of palm branches and coats being taken off. But really, have we wrestled with the gravity of God coming into our lives and changing us, addressing the questions that we're dying for answers for, begging for answers for? Have we allowed that into who we are? Or we just take off the coat, wave Hosanna, because everybody's doing it and hopefully he delivers. But what if he doesn't in the way that I thought? See, that's the thing about crowd enthusiasm is it can get you to believe what you want to believe, not what you need to believe. The need to believe is that God wants to change you, but through a little bit of trial by fire, as they say, or as acts, everyone will be salted with fire. And what I'm challenging you today to, is to assess right now, man, am I following based off of a groupthink theology and have I ever allowed God into the depths of my soul alone in his word saying, speak to me repeatedly, day after day, month after month, year after year, decade after decade. See, I don't sacrifice that in my life every day. God, speak. I'm open. God, speak, I'm open. May I never get so wrapped up in what a crowd is thinking that I forgot I, you challenged me to think and receive on my own. My final thing is, is a bonus, and it's a must read because I think that this is important to say in closing. Directly following these demonstrations, Jesus cleanses the temple. In cleansing the temple, he kicks out the businessmen, the money launderers, and the elitist religious mindset and welcomes back the commoner, the sick, the lame, and the forgotten. If there's one thing we are supposed to do to align with the coming reality in the times of this Palm Sunday, it is to reorient our spirit to be bringing in those that the resurrection was supposed to be for. Fixate is a place where the community is the mission and the mission is the community. And today, if there's one challenge, if you've received resurrection power, it is to reframe this not as Easter week, but invitation week, because that is the reason for all of Jesus' life, a new invitation. 
See, we don't just celebrate resurrection. We celebrate the fact that Jesus cleanses the temple to make room for people who never had a place in it. See, Palm Sunday was, yes, Hosanna, here's my coats on the ground, and then Jesus kicking them out. And I want to challenge you this week that there are those who never have been in the temple of God who don't know that there's a spot that's been cleaned out for them. There's a chair that's been predestined for them. And no, I'm not Calvinist. (laughs) It's us coming to the place that, God, you have my hands, my feet. You've got my time. You've got my relationships. But more than that, you have the people around me. And I take ownership of the people around me and the voice that I have into their life. See, may we not celebrate the resurrection so much that we forget that the resurrection was for new invitation. And that new invitation, if you've already accepted it, isn't just for you, it's for those who've never had it before. And as Jesus cleanses this temple, he makes room for a new type of people. Not of Jew, but of lame, of sick, of Gentile. This is the new that Jesus purchases. And I pray today that you're looking for the right thing for the right reasons. Let's invite people this week to a temple that has room for them. Stand to your feet. If you've been here before, you know we have a practice and rhythm in which I just read a prayer over our congregation related to the message. So whatever your posture for receiving is, I want to read this over you. Oh God, today we enter into the history of you. One week before your death and crucifixion, knowing what was coming, you embraced the Hosanna of man. The palm branches fluttering, the coats stripped and thrown off of pilgrims, paving the way for your donkey. Knowing that in short time, it would be the opposite of all these things. Anger, rage, and indignation targeted at the destruction of your physical body, not knowing the gravity of what it would mean for our spiritual one. Today we celebrate that you see through the enthusiasm and groupthink of culture, inviting us not to do what everyone else is doing, not to only experience you in the crowds of the kingdom-minded, but to experience you in our solitary selves. Oh God, reassemble our theology of the donkey, not of the war horse. Reconstruct our salvation birthed through suffering sacrifice and the acceptance of your grace keep our eyes upward and inward knowing that a fallen world will act fallen and that there is a life rooted in beholding that keeps us under the shadow of your wings oh god this sunday may you save us now but not from the world or the institutions or establishments of man but save us of our own sin and brokenness Redeem this new creation. Restore your creative intent. Keep our feet firm on the foundation of faith purchased through bloodshed. 
Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Thank you.